G'day listeners and welcome to the Doctor Who show for the month of December. I'm Rob. I'm Dave and what a couple of months we are having here at the Doctor Who show, Rob. <laughs> this is crazy. It feels like deja vu. I'm in front of this microphone again with you, Dave. Uh, yes, it was only just a couple of days before Christmas we got together with our friend Richard and recorded our discussion, our, our very deep dive chat into Star Wars Rise of Skywalker. We're going to be back in front of this microphone in about a week to discuss episodes 1 and 2 of series 12 plus we've got some other things coming out across the next couple of months it's a busy time thank you listeners for joining us and i hope you're enjoying the content what are we going to do in this episode we thought we'd do something different uh yes given that we have so much to do so much going on we thought rather than doing a very deep dive into something as we normally do whether it's a season or a doctor or a story or a, a topic or whatever we would have a bit of fun and and do something a little bit lighter maybe than what we normally do and so we decided to ask our listeners for just a bunch of questions that we could chat about for three four five minutes each and just sort of see where that takes us and i must admit rob i was a little nervous when i pitched this because i thought what if we only get two questions? Um, <laughs> but we've done very well. So thank you to everybody who sent in a question via whatever means. And we will uh, smash through them shortly. And uh, yeah, hopefully it's just going to be a bit, bit random, a bit exciting. And uh, we'll go from there. Absolutely. But first we'll kick off with some news. So the first piece of news is basically that season 12 is coming out. Mm-hmm. I think we need to mention that. <laughs> we, we do, we do. And it's interesting because since we last spoke, there's been a lot of trailers, a lot of articles. For example, there's a headline in this article I've got in front of me, this Doctor Who preview hints at how Jodie Whittaker's Doctor will be tested. And there's a lot of that sort of stuff coming out. My big takeaway from it all, Rob, and I've mentioned this before, is the trailer seems to say, hey, hey kids, you weren't quite sure about the last season. Well, this time we've got monsters and we've got lots of explosions. And so, come on, it's going to be a lot of fun. Let's just do it. It's almost like they're sort of doing a new series version of season five, I reckon. Yeah, it's really interesting, Dave. And if I can draw parallels to Star Wars, it's almost like last season was The Last Jedi and this season is The Rise of Skywalker. Chibnall's out there on the front foot saying, hey, we've got the Jadoom back. We've got Cybermen back. We're going to do this, that and the other. It's more almost for the fans, almost an appeal to the fans to, to almost come back to the show is how I'm reading it. Yeah, not just the fans, I think, but also some of the general audience who maybe were a little bit more ambivalent to the last season as well. Because if you watch the latest version of the trailer, it is literally Doctor, Monster, Explosion, Doctor, Monster, Explosion, Monster, Explosion, Doctor, Doctor, Monster, Explosion. <laughs> like, you know, <laughs> and, and I think that... Given that the last season, which, which you know, we liked some of, we didn't like some of, but the last season was a very long way from Monster of the Week and Explosions and was occasionally a little bit dry. Um, mm. You know, it, it had the historicals, which I really liked, but, you know, and they kind of a couple of times inserted a monster because you needed a monster, but it was kind of an afterthought monster. And maybe there was a bit of a feeling that that was a little bit dry and a little bit mm, dull is too strong a word, but dull adjacent I guess you could say and and I think they're saying this season's going to be, be a slightly different tone it is going to be more monster it is going to be explosion or at least that's what they're pitching to us with the previews and with articles like this one where you know it's going to be less about the Doctor and the fam so much as the Doctor being tested and more tension between the companions and the Doctor and it's going to be maybe just a little 
not dark. I don't think that's the right word, and that's no no word. But just a little bit more. More drama, maybe. Yeah, maybe, maybe a little bit more. Because it does feel like they sort of just coasted through a lot of the previous uh, season's stories. They just sort of cruised through, and there, there, there was never a lot of drama or tension to me at times. At times, no, there wasn't. I mean, Graham got some really good, genuine emotional drama, and he played that really well. And I think regularly we were highlighting in our reviews of the season those dramatic moments with Graham and how well uh, he did. And there are some with Ryan as well. So I think they are diving deeper into it. Or or at least that's the sort of message they want us to take away from all the trailers and all these leaked articles to various different websites and news organisations. So we'll know for sure soon enough. It could be that every explosion in the whole season is in that trailer. Um, (laughs) Possibly. Yeah, but I do think genuinely that that is a very deliberate vibe and message they are trying to sell. And I'm, I'm here for it. I, I love my monsters. Yeah, look, we'll know in a few days' time, so I'm delighted we get to record our thoughts here and we can look back on them in the future. If I can get a hit rate over 50%, I'll be happy. I liked about 50% of the previous series. If I can get more than that, fantastic. Uh, what I would like is one or two diehard classics. Which yeah, is, which that would is, be great. Which is what the last season like. Like, I accept that in a new season, particularly as a hot take, what I'm just looking at it and you now I'm affected by my moods and the day and what's going on and all the rest of it I accept that there will be two, three, four episodes that won't work for me that's that's just the reality of something like Doctor Who where it's very different every week and there's no con- consistent tone, that's, that's part of the variety it means some episodes probably won't land for me and, and the last season had that and that's fine, that's not a bad thing there are seasons of Doctor Who with far more episodes that didn't work for me than season 11 what season 11 lacked though was that one or two just absolute on arrival classics that everyone Bangers. just watches and goes, Bangers, Dave. Yeah, everyone just watches and goes, "Wow, that was classic Doctor Who. That was amazing. Everyone likes that one." You know, you're world enough in time. I mean, not every episode can be world enough in time, but you need one in a series at least. Yeah, or a blink, or a Dalek, or whatever. Impossible Planet, Saving Pit. Um, yeah, all of those ones that we've discussed. Mm. It, it lacked one of those, and I think if they can have one or two of those just to raise the season up a bit I think that will make for a very good season uh, but yeah I guess as you said we'll we'll know shortly and listeners our hot take review of episodes one and two will be out hopefully sometime on the 6th yeah yeah we'll try and get it out as soon as we can see it down here in the Antipodes yeah Moving on, Dave, I saw this uh, this piece of news. Obviously, with the new season coming out, the, the cast is out there talking about stuff, and I guess journalists are looking for different angles and stuff, and I thought this angle would, uh, would quite tickle your fancy because uh, a journalist has got a hold of Bradley Walsh and has got him talking about his history with the show, and he is a big fan of Hartnell and Troughton. Did you know that? I didn't know that, but... I'm very pleased that he is. He is. And he's out there talking about watching it in the early days. And this is a quote from him. If you've watched the program via the beginning with William Hartnell and Patrick Troughton, you were brought up with those, he explained. That's the pinnacle for me of Doctor Who. That's it. I remember that. That was some scary times. The pinnacle, Dave. How about that? He thinks the pinnacle is Hartnell and Troughton. Yeah, that's really interesting. I actually didn't realise that Bradley Walsh was old enough to have seen the Hartnell 
era go out, but I have just looked him up while you've been speaking, and he was born in 1960, so he would have been old enough certainly to have watched the later Hartnells and would have been sort of prime time to watch the Troutons. That's exactly right. So, yeah, I I thought you'd appreciate that one. Yeah, there you go. Uh, Another little bit for uh, those who are fans of nostalgia and retrospect office is that <laughs> somebody asked Jodie Whittaker, and there's an Radio Times article about this, somebody asked Jodie Whittaker who she would like to do a multi-doctor story with, and she picked Christopher Eccleston and David Tennant. Interestingly, not because of anything to do with their doctors, but because of the actors themselves. They're mm. people that she has worked with, likes, get on, gets on with, and would like to work in a multi-doctor story with. Now, my initial take to that was, what about Matt and Peter? That's a bit harsh. Mm. Um, and, and, and I guess she was asked to pick a couple, so that's perhaps not fair on my part. And then I thought, well, you know, all you're really doing is just picking your mates. But then I thought, maybe that's actually not a bad way to do it, because if the thing that we want from a multi-doctor story is that really good, genuine interaction between the doctors, Trout and, and Pertwee, in The Three Doctors, or uh, Davison and Herndl in The Five Doctors, you know, that interaction between the characters. Mm. What better way to do that than have three actors who are good mates and have a good relationship and let that move and shine and flow onto the screen? So, yeah, actually, I thought it was a pretty neat idea. All hypothetical, of course. Oh, for sure, for sure. And obviously she worked with Tennant on Broadchurch, but Eccleston, I think, is more of a stage sort of situation. I'm not sure they've been in a TV series together. I could be completely wrong, but I I remember watching YouTube videos of them on stage together back when she was uh, selected as the new Doctor. And I was getting a sort of a fanboy thrill, like, oh, there's the the ninth and 13th Doctors interacting on stage. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So that's quite cool. And in terms of Eccleston himself... I reckon he's turned a corner with fandom. He now appears at conventions. He talks openly about the show. He's written his autobiography. I think he's gotten a lot off his chest. Oh, look, it's it's hard to say whether he, he would, would really come back, but I'm leaning more towards a yes than a no at present. He just seems to be turning that corner, and if it's someone he's worked with like Jody and the script's right, maybe he's of a mind to do it over the next five years or whatever and that's the point that i was going to make if the overture came not so much from the production team but from the lead actor that might be something that would help to get him on board mm. the only other question this raises is is jody looking to stick around for a few more years there's no reason why a multi-doctor story has to be an anniversary either i mean the two doctors prove that so maybe if they need to bit of a bang or a bit of a spark for the next season and Jodie's still hanging around that could be the big spark maybe maybe lovely segue talking multiple doctors though for our final piece uh Sylvester McCoy's been out there in the press just talking uh about stuff and he got queried on what Paul McGann's first series would have been like if it had have uh, moved on from the tv movie to have been a, a show being made uh, out of Canada I guess and he starts throwing around ideas that, oh, yeah, they would have brought back uh, Ace for sure 
and past doctors. Now, I don't know how much of this was ever carved in stone, but he says the producer, who was Philip Siegel, who is an Englishman and who loved Doctor Who, it was in his dreams of the future of the show that the other doctors would have popped in and companions and all that kind of stuff. So I guess there was no scripts or anything written, not even script treatments, but Sylvester seems convinced that there would have been some multi-doctor stuff going on in that McGann series that we never got. And that would have been a lot of fun, I think, because as he points out, he says, you know, not just himself, but Colin and uh, Peter and John Pertwee was still around, I think, then, he says. Well, well, no. Pertwee died the month that the telemovie came out, so he wasn't. Quite right. Uh, so, uh, no, we can, we can rule Pertwee out, but no, I think the others would have been quite keen. And, and given that it would have been a, a big budget US-style production with 22 to 26 episodes a season, like the Treks were doing at that time, and Buffy and all the rest of that, there would have been that capacity to, to do it. And there would have been that, that quest to fill those slots with a lot of different things, and I think they absolutely would have done it. I mean, we, we all know the way that US television works, and, or particularly worked back in the 90s, where you had your sweeps period and your, your ratings periods, and they would all TV shows would just be looking for that gimmick to get you know to get them up in, in sweeps. You know, whether it's the Daleks returning or an old Doctor returning or something, they they would have done it. And, and you know, they might have got Tom Baker. I mean, they would have had far better than the BBC did the capacity to just drive a dump truck of cash up to Tom Baker's house and say, mm. you know, we'll fly to Vancouver first class, pay you a shed load of money. Uh, and all you need to do is be in yeah. 45 minutes of television. You know, I think I think Tom would have would have uh, taken that. Oh, look, Dave, it's the great lost era of Doctor Who for mine. Even if it only lasted a series or two series, as you say, these would have been longer series. We would have had a bunch of stories from that era. It would have been its own yeah. beautiful little thing. Again, even if it got, got cancelled yeah, after no, a year Yeah, it is a shame. I think there would have been a lot in that. Doctor Who made with, with US money would have been interesting uh we also would have been made with u.s ethos to some extent as much as they tried to put the british ethos in it's very hard to do that whilst you're in vancouver and working with an american production company so it would have been i think a very odd season and i think it wouldn't have sat very comfortably alongside the rest of doctor who but you're right it would have been its own wonderful little thing that could have been quite fun yeah, because looking back now that we have New Who, that's its own thing in the classic era and the wilderness years and the books that came out there and Big Finish, Doctor Who is sort of fragmented into all these different things, so it wouldn't really matter. At the time, yeah, it would have seemed like anathema to us. It would have been like, oh my God, what's happening? You know, and I'm sure Terence Dix would have had some words for it as well. <laughs> uh, based on what he thought of the TV movie alone. But uh, what, what yes, could have been? Absolutely. Uh, but look, that's the news, and as I said, we haven't got a lot because the new series is about to start. Woohoo! Yeah, and that yeah, indeed, woohoo! That is the big news. Following on from that, we would normally do short topics in an episode like this, Dave. But because we have so many listener questions and and even some listener mailbag at the end of the listener questions, we're going to eschew that this week. It's shelved, but obviously, short topics will return in the new year. So, with all that said, Dave, are you ready to dive into this? Uh listener uh forum i guess we could call it absolutely so a whole bunch of questions quick short fun answers let's go all righty i think you're going to lead us off dave uh yes i am so the first one that came in was from the human palindrome also known as mark cockram who is at mark cockram on tw twitter hello mark hello mark yes thank you for, 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 for writing to us and he says you can have all the missing hartnell and trouton stories back but you would have to lose all the Pertwee stories. Would you do it? 
Ooh. For mine, I would not do it because I think the Pertwee era has some wonderful stuff in it. And we do have we, we do have most of the Hartnell era already. It's Troughton we're lacking. It'd be great if some more stories come back. But I couldn't trade those stories for all of Pertwee. I mean, that's that's a hell of a thing. As much as I'd love to see the Myth Makers or, or something from the Troughton era, like all of, uh, I don't know, Evil of the Daleks or something like that, I just couldn't do it, Dave. How about you? Well, you see, I interpreted this as being as though Thanos snapped his fingers and the Pertwee, the Pertwee era right now in 2019 disappeared and the Hartnell and Troughton era has appeared. What that means is that, look, we've had 50 years of the Pertwee era. In Australia, we've had regular repeats going right back to the 70s and the 80s. Rob, you and I grew up watching the Pertwee era. Let's face it, I could basically recite most of the Pertwee stories off by heart. <laughs> Therefore, whilst I would miss being able to watch them again... I'm trading in something I am very, very familiar with for stuff I have literally never watched, and I would be willing to make that sacrifice. As sad as I would be to not see the Pertwee era again, I've had a lot of time to spend with the Pertwee era. I know the Pertwee era. How many times can you watch the Pertwee era? I'm sure I'll find out across the next rest of my life. But, yeah, if, if we could Thanos out <laughs> Pertwee and get back Hartnell and Troughton, but keep our memories of Pertwee... Ooh, okay. They're, they're, then I say yes. If we lost our memories of Pertwee, then I would say no. Mm, so we're coming at this from two different angles, it sounds like. Uh, yes, but mm. un- unless Mark actually out there has got all the Infinity Stones collected and has this power, in which case, Mark, we need to chat. <laughs> <laughs> it is a hypothetical, but uh, a yes from me and a no from you. Okay, let's move on because we've got loads to get through. Tardis Blue, who tweets on uh, Twitter, funnily enough, as Doctor Who NZ, says, Is it a mistake for Chibnall to be making claims like this before any episodes have aired? And the claims are Doctor Who's season 12 premiere may be the biggest episode in the show's history. And he adds, personally, I think it is a mistake. So my answer to that is no, but with qualifications. I say no because the alternate would be to release a press release that says, hey, everyone, Doctor Who's coming back. And look, this year it's not too bad. We think you'll like some of it. Um, We know we've got a bit of it wrong. But um, look, overall, it's pretty good. That would not be a very successful media release. They have to say it's going to be good. They have to say it's going to be big. It's going to be exciting. And, and, And that's just PR. You know, no television show is ever going to come out and not say the new series is bigger and better than it was before. Yes, it runs the risks of holding themselves to a standard they can't meet, but that's publicity. What else are they going to do? My caveat, though, is that they need to be very careful about making specific promises. And one example of that was before the last season where Chibnall came out and did a lot of publicity and got the BBC media machine talking about how this was going to be an awesome season for LGBT representation Mm. and set a standard there that they were going to meet and made a promise. And that really amounted to a few sort of hints and mentions and the only sort of overtly gay man that we saw died 70 seconds after he came on board and (laughs) just 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 fed that trope you know the 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 bury your gays trope yeah so nobody would have cared so much about that if it wasn't that they'd made a promise in their publicity if you're going to do that you've got to deliver so general it's going to be great i'm okay with specifics if you're going to promise them you need to deliver 
Yeah, look, I concur with all of that. I'm I'm an ex-journo going back 20-odd years, so I've read a lot of press releases in my time. And then later I became a PR guy, so I've written a lot of press releases as well. And this is just the sort of stuff you've got to do. I do agree, Dave, if you're making very specific promises, they should be followed up on. But just saying something is bigger and better, these are very broad things, and they're usually forgotten about days or at least weeks later. We Think back to some of these Moffat seasons that we had. He was saying all kinds of outrageous stuff, but on the off the top of our head, can we remember any of it now? No, no we'd have no. we'd have to go back and pull out the news stories and you know have a bit of a, a giggle at them. But um, <laughs> so I think it's just part of what you've got to do for publicity. I know when you're a very passionate fan, though, as I'm sure Tardis Blue is, like we all are listening to this podcast, it does give you a bit of a pause where you say, "Oh, this is going to be biggest," you know, the biggest episode, and and then you watch it, and you think, "Oh, it was just kind of like any other episode, really." I know that's frustrating but I think it's just what they've got to do. Agree. Uh, next one comes in from Hayden Gribble from the Diddly Dumb podcast. Hello to Hayden and the team at Diddly Dumb. Hello. Uh, really enjoyed your Christmas episode as always. Thank you, guys. Yes. He says, what would your dream TARDIS team mashup be? E.g. First Doctor and Donna. Uh, Rob, I've got three. Uh, do you want to start or shall I start? Oh, look, I'll, I'll start, Dave. Um, I've got one in my head. and Actually, I've got two in my head, and they both involve Davo. Davo's my favourite Doctor, <laughs> as everyone knows. <laughs> you know, if you want to talk Davo, come to me. And I would say I'd like to see Davo with two different kinds of companion. One, a more... Uh, thoughtful, intellectual type, because we always say, you know, oh, wouldn't it have been great if he just had done a lot with Nyssa? And I guess in Big Finish he has. You know, what an, what an excellent sort of companion for Davo. And that's true in some ways. I would pick in that vein someone like the first Romana. I would love to see the first Romana with Davo. Now I'll pause there to see if you've got any reaction. Would she, would she outshine him? Is she too big for Davo? Oh, but I think... I think they'd go head to head. I think it'd, it might, it might bring something out of Davo. I think there might be a lot of eye rolling between them, uh, and Davo could be quite exasperated and bring out his Hartnell sort of side. And I just think it could be a lot of fun. Okay, no, no, fair enough. Mm-hmm. My second one on the opposite end of the spectrum is someone just really out there and 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 fun. And <laughs> you're gonna hate this, Dave. I'd like to see Captain Jack and Davo. Is that too crazy? <laughs> um, no, that actually would be a very interesting combination, I think, because Jack is such the sexually charged extrovert, yes, and Davo is not. <laughs> <laughs> It'd be like the odd and, couple in space, Dave. That would actually be a very interesting sort of take. And um, you know, Dave Davo was a very young, pretty man at the time. He was in Doctor Who, mm-hmm. and I, I don't know how would Jack cope with. Travelling with a doctor like that, that that could be interesting. I, I could just imagine, you know, the, the the episode of Doctor Who, you know, we always used to get in the Davison era, that bit where they'd open and Nissa and Tegan were in the bedroom doing something, whatever, and instead it opens with Davo and Captain Jack just, like, colouring each other's hair. <laughs> Fantastic. Uh, I had three. Okay. Uh, so I'm going to start with the seventh Doctor and Ian and Barbara. Oh, okay. Because... Well, partly, Hayden said we need to be picking, you know, our dreams, and my dream would be to see anything with Ian and Barbara. Yeah. But I thought about the McCoy Doctor, that that sort of arch manipulator, that darker Doctor. What would he be like if he had Ian and Barbara rather than Ace, who would 
call him out on what he was doing and weren't as easily manipulated by him as, as Ace was. And I think that would have actually been a very interesting dynamic that might have tempered the Seventh Doctor a bit. But also I think that McCoy and, and, and those two would get on very well together and would be quite interesting. Hmm. Can I jump in there and say, uh, is is that thought in any way coloured by remembrance of the Daleks and some of the people uh, McCoy works with there back in the 60s, one of whom is is almost Barbara? Yes, I think that it is a little bit. I think that shows just how well it could work. Yeah, yeah, that's what I'm thinking. Uh, the third Doctor and Bill. Oh, now that's good. Imagine Bill working with Unit, working with the Doctor, all the gadgets, all that discovering the universe. I'm going to make you into a scientist. And, and, and look, in some ways, Capaldi was a bit like Pertwee. I think he was more like Tom than he was Pertwee, but he had Pertwee-ish characteristics. Mm. Um, so that, that, I think, makes it an easy fit as well. But, you know, Bill is my favourite companion of the new series, and I really love the Pertwee Doctor. And I just think they would work so well together. And even Bill, I think, with the Brigadier and Benson and Yates would be quite good because she's such a strong personality that wouldn't conform to the Brigadier's idea of what an assistant should be. And that, that would be, again, an interesting dynamic. I like it. Uh, and my final one. Hartnell, Adric, and Vicky. <laughs> Hartnell, Adric, and Vicky. Because... Oh, wow. I've said before, Adric is at his best when it's him and the fourth Doctor, and there's that mentor relationship. Yeah. Imagine if that mentor-Telemachus relationship wasn't the fourth Doctor and Adric, but the first Doctor and Adric. That would, I think, take it to a whole new level in the way that he did have that relationship with Vicky. And I think having... Adric in there with Vicky as well would just, again, soften his edges a bit, but I think that would be a really, really good dynamic and the best sort of dynamic for Adric. Dave, I wouldn't have thought of that one if you gave me a year to think about that question, but that <laughs> that would actually work. I think that would work. Yeah, I think so. I think so. Fantastic. All right, for this next question, Dave, um, I think we're going to need a little help because I don't believe you've played any of the Doctor Who RPGs, have you? RPG being role-playing game? Correct. <laughs> no, that, 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 that question probably uh, gives away that I haven't. I'm aware of the Time Lord one being in the shops back at the time when I was buying all the new adventures, but I, I never bought it. I've played a few sort of, you know, Dungeons & Dragons HeroQuest type games, but uh, not a lot and certainly no Doctor Whos. I haven't tried any of them. Yeah, look, I'm in the same boat. I've never played any of these, although I have played role-playing games in the past, even live ones with, you know, a dungeon master sitting at the end of the table and rolling dice and the whole, you know, kit and caboodle. But Doctor Who ones, no. So I think we're going to need Richard for this one. Uh, yes, that was that would be a very unsatisfying answer if we just left it to us. So uh, <laughs> let's phone a friend. Yeah, let's phone a friend. Where's his number? Okay. <laughs> Hello. Richard, how are you? Rob and Dave from the Doctor Who show here. How you going, guys? <laughs> well, thank you. We're phoning you, uh, Richard, because we've had a question for our latest episode about Doctor Who RPGs. A listener has asked us which which are the best, the Farsa Games one, the Time Lord one from Virgin Books, or the Cubicle 7 one. Do you have any thoughts on that? Wow, Okay. Yes, I have all three. Um, I do remember playing the Fusser one uh, back in sort of the mid to late 80s. Um, I, I have Time Lord, and look, I, I don't actually own the Cubicle 7 one, but I have read uh, I have read some of the books. 
I'm in terms of best, I'm probably tempted actually almost to go with the Cubicle Seven game because there is a lot of support material for it. Um, there's a lot of um, if you know how role-playing games work, you sort of have the, the core rule books and then you have all the supplements. Mm. And then obviously you have the game modules and stuff on top of that. Um, so look, Cubicle 7 has a lot of supplements and support material. It's pretty obvious that the guys who are writing it, I think, have a lot of love uh, for the series and, and whatever. So um, they're quite well-written and well-put-together books. Plus, of course, it's actually the only one that really offers new series content because the other two are much yeah. older. So uh, Fassa is the Fassa game is roughly contemporary with sort of the first Colin Baker series. Mm-hmm. So we're talking about 85, 86. Um, and there is actually a thing in the Fassa game where the very first printing of the Fassa game had uh, Colin Baker material in it, which wasn't covered by the license. So they actually had to do a reprint, oh. uh, removing all the, all the Colin stuff from the later prints. Do yes. I smell a rarity for our listeners to be looking for? <laughs> uh, potentially, yes. Unfortunately, I don't own the Colin Baker version, but uh, yes, the, the very first print run did, did apparently have Colin Baker stuff in it. Having said that, though, look, I do remember quite liking the Fusser game. I do own all of it. I have actually got all the supplements and all the game modules they put out for it. But my favourite part, probably the Fusser one, because, of course, it came with miniatures. And, and I think, really, it's probably the only one that has sort of dedicated game modules. I think most of the Cubicle 7 stuff probably aren't complete games. They're more story hooks and story ideas, uh-huh. perhaps, than, than actual proper. Like, if you, say, played Dungeons & Dragons, you, you remember you'd buy the actual module and it had had everything and it had the maps and the, all the encounters and all the... You know, it was a complete adventure, basically, in a book. Whereas, I, I think... I mean, look, they are all what you would call storytelling games. Mm-hmm. You can play Dungeons & Dragons, obviously, at a quite sort of mechanical level, roll the dice and kill the monsters... This really, all three of these, and I haven't really mentioned Time Lord, but all three of these really rely on being able to, to tell a compelling story. Um, so you really need a good dungeon master or game master really to build the atmosphere and sort of, you know, take the characters through the story. Yeah, yeah. Um, I'd probably say with role-playing, or something like a Doctor Who role-playing game, keeping everyone involved can be a bit of a, a challenge because... The Doctor or Time Lord character uh, obviously has it has more skills and more abilities, really, than anyone playing the companions. So they can sometimes be a bit overpowered. So it can be a case, excuse me, the person playing the companions really have got nothing to do mm. at times because the Doctor's driving the narrative. And I mean, look, obviously you see parallels of that in the series. You know, the companions are sort of peril monkeys. Yeah. Um, really. So you, you really, again, were relying on your game master at that point to probably keep the other characters involved. I, I have seen ones, and I did remember playing one of the Fusser ones where the Doctor was actually a non-player character played by the GM and we were just a companion sort of running around after him, which again was a bit of an interesting thing. I'd probably make the point, actually, the new series in some ways would have a distinct advantage there because you really, the, the focus in the new series really is that the companions are maybe don't have the doctor's knowledge and experience, but in terms of, of actual time on screen and what they contribute to the stories, um, they, they are as involved as the yeah, doctor. Yeah. yeah, so it would be hard to pick a favourite out of those three. And I haven't really mentioned Time Lord because it, it, it's a self, one single self-contained book. It, it obviously, again, focuses on the classic yeah. series. But again, it's very much around sort of story hooks and stuff. So the idea is really that your game master has to build a narrative. So... 
Yeah, if I, if I had to pick one, probably um, for nostalgia purposes, probably the Fussel one, again, and, and, and also because it had the miniatures. But I do think the other two are quite worthwhile games. So, so ho- hopefully that answers your question. It certainly says more than I could have on the topic. <laughs> yeah, same same here. So Pete Murphy at PopScene69 on Twitter. Hope that answers your question. Thanks so much, Richard. No worries. Uh, we'll, we'll see you in our Mandalorian talk very soon. No worries, guys. Thanks for the call. That was a nice break for the day. (laughs) Great. (laughs) All right. Bye. 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 Uh, So after that, we have one from Patrick Howe, who says, Merry Christmas, Rob and Dave. Oh, thank you. Thank you, yes. I'd be interested to hear your views on the TARDIS interior. Why do we not see other rooms more often? Why do we never see the crew eating? Whilst it might not always be exciting, it might allow for more character development and provide context for the companions as they travel with the Doctor. Looking forward to the show and your coverage of the new series. Cheers, Pat. Rob, what do you think? Wow. Well, well, first of all, thank you, Pat, for your question. I think that might be the first time Pat's uh, written into the show, which is great. So hello. Thank you for listening. I think I'm going to hark back to something we were talking about in the news. This has really just come to me since we had that discussion. And that's in a long American series of 20-plus episodes... I think you can do stuff like people hanging around the lunchroom at school or on the the spaceship in the crew quarters, whatever. I think you can do that. You know, if you're watching Firefly or something, that that's very normal. And I think maybe if Doctor Who had had done that longer sort of series, we might have seen that kind of thing: people hanging out in their rooms, eating, and so on. I think though, when you've got these forty-five minute episodes, as much as I love the TARDIS interior and I get very excited about it, stories set in the TARDIS, and there are so few of them. I think the stories have just got to rattle on and people standing around eating cereal out of a bowl or whatever isn't always that exciting. But if you have a longer series and it can breathe a bit, yeah, yeah, that's great. I like that. But I just don't think the series is is long enough, the episodes themselves or the, the series itself is long enough to really accommodate that kind of storytelling. It's nice, but I just don't think we can get it in there. Yeah, I'd agree with that. I'd make a couple of other points as well. Certainly there is stuff hinted at that goes on in other rooms and and that sort of life things are going on. I mean, not to be crass about it, but Rory and Amy did conceive a child whilst in the TARDIS. Mm, true. And, and that was, you know, that was the whole premise of what created Riversong and all that sort of thing. So that was implicitly stated to have occurred in the TARDIS. So clearly there are other rooms that that, that sort of thing can happen in and they are living some sort of a domestic life at some point whilst travelling with the Doctor, as I guess are others... I think that the to make the serious point though, I think that we sometimes overestimate just how tight the budget is for the new series, particularly in these later years, and also just how expensive the modern TARDIS interior is, and that's a very bad combination. Mm. Back in the days of the old series, where you'd say, "Okay, there's a discussion that happens in a, another room in the TARDIS," you just get a couple of very cheap flats and a white floor put them up, a couple of bits of tacky scenery, and you've got a very cheap room. Yeah. You couldn't do that with the current design of the TARDIS interior, uh, which, which you know, is, I think, a problem. I think the TARDIS interior has become more and more complicated and less and less interesting. Mm. And I, I'm a big fan of a back-to-basics approach, which would perhaps allow a bit more of that sort of thing. Uh, so, yeah, I think, I think there are storytelling reasons why you can't do it. I think there are budgetary reasons why it's harder to do. I do agree with the point that uh, 
Patrick is making, though, it, it is a bit of a shame that we perhaps don't see it as much. Not often, but but as much. And, and get that sense that these are people who are living together and travelling together in the way that we have with, you know, the Doctor and Sarah, the Doctor Ian and Barbara, etc. Yeah. Okay, good answer. Moving on, we've got one an email from Ben PM. He says, G'day, fellas. I've got a shameless plug, but also a question. <laughs> All right, Ben. <laughs> well, it's that time of year. We're, we're very uh, giving, so let, let, let's hear it. He says, I release Doomy Black Metal under the name Celestial Shadows. This year, 2019, I released an album entitled Rassilon with some less than subtle Doctor Who references without any keen listeners can check it out at celestialshadows.bandcamp.com or YouTube search Celestial Shadows Black Metal. So if you're into black metal, listeners, um, look it up. The question, though, is do you know of any Doctor Who references in music or other media? Cheers from Ben PM. I immediately went to an album cover from around about the year 2000, maybe the late 90s, that had the Mondas Cyberman on the front. Oh, yes. Uh, now, I can't remember for the life of me what it was. It was a band. It might have been Spider Bay, but it was that kind of a band. And given that they also released a goodies, a, a, a cover of a goodies song, um, it could well be them, or that just could be influencing my memory. References in non-Doctor Who music, though. I mean, obviously there's references in Doctor Who music, you know, Doctor and the TARDIS referenced the Daleks because it was Doctor and the TARDIS. Uh, and that did do quite well in the charts, scarily. But yeah, look, I can, I, th- I think we can include stuff like that. I mean, going back to the '60s, wasn't there? I want to spend my Christmas with a Dalek, like a single. Uh, and then in the per- yes. Pertwee era, he did "I Am the Doctor," that that wonderful seven-inch. <laughs> yeah, I mean, Fraser Hines released a single that was on one side Doctor Who related, on the other side it was just a, a, a normal single, and he was very annoyed that the publicity machine said, no, 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 we need to make the Doctor Who track the main track and the non-Doctor Who one should be the um, the flip side mm-hmm. um, because the Doctor Who one was kind of terrible and the flip side one, one, certainly Fraser thought, was kind of good. And if they'd actually had that be the one that got played on the radio, it would have sold far, far more copies. <laughs> um, but references in mainstream music, there are probably listeners out there shouting at us about this, but... I'm struggling to think of any, and that's probably a reflection of my knowledge of popular music, to be honest. Yeah. Look, I think in in fandom, and there'd probably be Wikipedia entries on this, I, I know fans have often made a lot of Doctor Who music, and you hear at Gallifrey 1 from year to year, oh, someone got up and did a, a set of Doctor Who-inspired songs and stuff, but they're not by, like, particularly um, big groups or anything like that. They're, they're, they're more sort of fans, amateur musician type uh, situations. Yeah, no, look, if we think of anything, we'll put it up on our social media and we invite others to write in and if uh, if we get anybody sending us some suggestions, we'll read them out as part of our next monthly episode. But uh, sorry, don't have a really good answer for you there. <laughs> that's okay, but do look up I'm Going to Spend My Christmas with a Dalek uh, from the 60s because that's the one with the Dalek in the chorus, I think, saying, Happy Christmas! <laughs> and it's Is quite fun. Is that the one with Roberta Tobias in there? Oh, no. Or I think she sing something else? She may have sung something else. I think it was a girl group who did it. She did Who Doctor Who, that's right. That's right. Yeah, no, this is the one. It's a, it's a girl group and it's got the Dalek voice in it. I, I think it's saying things like, can I have plum pudding and custard? And things yeah, like that's this. that's right. It's, yes, no. It's you, terrible right. and great at the same time. 
You're right. And yes, Roberta Tovey, who played the companion Susan in the two Doctor Who movies in the 60s, yes, she did join with a girl group and did Who Doctor Who or whatever it was called, yes. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. (laughs) Thank you for the question. So, Rob, for our next question, given we've had Richard on earlier to discuss it, and this is our Christmas episode and perhaps we want to celebrate 2019, maybe we should ask some of our other co-hosts to join in and... I think this would be a good question to put to part-time co-host Mike Solko. What do you think? I think so too, Dave. Now, Mike is a long way away, so let's see if we can get him tuned into the podcast frequency here. Boys? Rob? You guys hear me okay? All right, l- let me try this, and then if I press this. Okay, it looks like my signal should be coming in clearly now. Uh, this is Michael Solko. I've been a contributor to the Doctor Who show in the past. I've sat in for Dave a few times when he's been out, as, as well as I used to host a podcast called The Time Scoop, which was a Doctor Who podcast uh, regarding a Doctor Who draft. People would kind of come up with creative storytelling ideas for the draft. So it's still out there. You can find it if you look it up. Um, uh, unfortunately, the controls are really rusty over here. It's been a few years, and uh, I'm kind of having to burn the power of a son, as well as a few missing series at four episodes. Sorry about that. Uh, but I just want to try to get this message through while I still can. And there's a chance that my power might burn out at any time here, so I'll try to go through it pretty quickly. But there's a really great listener email that came in from Sheldon Carnegie. And Sheldon asks, how would you bring back each of these former companions? Ace, Susan, Donna, Clara, and Martha. So I'm tempted to start with Clara because she was the most recent companion. But uh, she's had a few character endings already, and she showed up in Capaldi's last episode, so I'll probably come back to her in a minute. Let me let me think. So, so Ace would be actually probably one of the most straightforward and easy ones. Uh, we've seen these great season 26 promos where she's running a charitable Earth, her organization which is lifting up people on Earth, and that's such a great character development from what we've seen in the past, uh, you know, where she used to be this character who's rebellious and would blow stuff up, and now she's leading this organization that lifts people up and helps their lives, so that's huge. And I think a great way to do it would be to have a Christmas episode or a holiday episode where Ryan and Graham are off doing their own thing, Yaz is with her family. Instead, you know, she goes over and she checks in with some old past companions and eventually comes upon Ace and she sees a charitable earth and they have an adventure with some aliens, things along those lines. So it's a chance to get maybe a few old faces in, but without going too overboard. Um, maybe Clara, no, not Clara at this point, but, but Donna. So you've always got this issue about what if Donna remembers the doctor, her head's going to blow up all these things. So how about this? Donna got married but it didn't really work out. Uh, the guy just wasn't strong enough for Donna because we know anybody who's going to be married to Donna is going to have to be an incredibly strong person. Um, and she had that lottery winning money that the doctor gave her that lottery ticket. So one night she's in a grouchy mood. She gets this cold collar from a charitable earth and she thinks about it. And even though she doesn't remember her adventures with the doctor, she still remembers being a good person and, and how to take those steps to lift up humanity. So again, she actually works for a charitable earth. Now she donated some of her money and next thing you know, she's running the office pool. So at some point towards the end of the episode, the doctor might have a brief encounter with her. That way you're not running the risk of blowing her head up, but you still get to see Catherine Tate on a holiday. And how fun is that? That would be awesome. So back to, no, not Clara yet. Um, 
Susan, I think, is a tough one because we don't know, did she get stuck on Earth forever? Did she have a family? Uh, different spin-off media has covered that differently. Um, but I think really the important thing to do would be to echo her story with Ryan and Graham. Maybe Graham's thinking that he needs to leave so Ryan can be his own man. Uh, maybe there's a situation where Ryan's feeling cramped by Graham, something like that. And here we have Susan, who was abandoned by her grandfather. And you can say whether that was good or bad, whether she actually was happy about that or not. Uh, there's different ways you could go about it, but it's a great way to echo the story of the current companions with the doctor's original companion, his granddaughter. So not just thinking about it in terms of their reunion, but how it would inform the current companions. Um, you know, there's lots you could do with Susan, but I think that'd be a really interesting take. You know, thinking of time, ladies, uh, Clara's out there in her time machine, but I'm going to get back to Clara. Just one more moment. So Martha, uh, we've seen Martha as an adjunct member of Torchwood at some points. Uh, but, you know, Torchwood's really kind of in a shaky situation right now. They've got their audio adventures, but they're not really a TV company right now. You know, they're, they're off doing their own thing. So what about Unit? We've seen her take part with Unit in the past. We've seen that she's still doing some soldiery stuff. We know that she has the possibility and the opportunity to lead people. She's really great at it. So let's have Mickey and Martha running Unit. Martha, number one. Mickey is her number two. Let's have her running unit. And I don't mean we have to kick out Kate Lethbridge-Stewart and Osgood and those folks. They could be leading units somewhere else. Doctor Who really enjoys going on their holidays right now. So maybe they go overseas and they run into some old friends who are now running the unit division in that area. And it's another chance to see the growth of those characters and for the characters who we have currently on the show to see what life might be like after their time with the Doctor. So that would be a really cool idea. So now, uh, getting back to Clara, my idea for that is... Well, that was Mike Solko uh, breaking up just as he was about to get to something about Clara, perhaps uh, fortuitously, Dave. Uh, yes, but uh, expressing some views very subtly there that I must admit I have a lot of sympathy for, so uh, I enjoyed that, Mike. That was very well done. Awesome. It's a really interesting area because I think our fanish hearts want to see these companions back mm. but I'm not always sure that it's the right thing to happen and certainly when you're looking at the older companions it's very hard to do you look at Susan in the five doctors she, she's nothing like either in looks or personality or character what she was when she left at the end of Dalek Invasion of Earth I mean time passes for actors and actresses so Unless you can really work that in, and, and I think in Susan's case you could, and make it about that, that would be very interesting. Or a story about how Ace has moved on in her life over the last 30 or 40 years is the story that our Finnish hearts want. It would probably be very cool, but would it really be what we want? Or would just sort of show that we can't have that? Mm, yeah, it's it, it, it's a tricky one. You know, as you say, as fans, we, we want this stuff, but is, is it for the best? I'm not sure, but I did enjoy how Mike would uh, would actually do it. I thought they were quite good. Yeah, look, it's 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 a fun thing to speculate about, and I mean Martha, I would have I'll happily have back. I think Martha's really good. Clara, not so much. <laughs> Shall we move on? Uh, yes. What have we got next, Rob? Next, Dave, we have a question from one of our co-hosts. Uh, it's Richard who answered one of our questions earlier, so this is getting very meta. Uh, Richard asks by email. Is having the master in every story of season eight overkill? No. <laughs> Short answer. <laughs> and, and no for a number of reasons. One, I've got to say, when I was a kid, I didn't notice the master was in every story. He just was. 
and it was great. And every time there'll be that moment of Thaskalus is the Greek word for master. I was like, oh my god, the master! Like it worked for me. It was wonderful. Uh, secondly, there is no such thing as too much Roger Delgado. So you know, who cares if he's in every story? It's Roger Delgado. But thirdly, as we actually discussed in our Pertwee episode a couple of months ago. I really do genuinely contend that there is a proper genuine arc that goes across the Master's story in Season 8 that starts with the Master just showing up and wanting to have a bit of fun with the Doctor and mess with the Doctor and almost kind of gain the Doctor's respect. It then gets to the point where, in Colony in Space, he actually says to the Doctor, I want to share the universe with you, Mm. and the Doctor rejects that, and that is when the Master sort of switches gears and says, right, I am now the spurned friend and I actually just want all the power to destroy the world and I think there is a genuine arc across that it starts with the introduction of the master ends with him being captured and arrested by unit I think it works and even in there you get half a story in Colony in Space that doesn't have the master in it you get very good plot strands in Claws of Axos that don't involve the master and, and let's face it, the stuff with the Master in Claws of Axos is by far the best stuff in Claws of Axos. <laughs> so, yeah, I, I, I'm very, very cool with it. Yeah, it's it's interesting. I mean, there are so many ways to look at it. You can't have too much Roger Delgado. You're right, Dave. Also, knowing in hindsight what we know, that he wouldn't be around for much longer, it's wonderful that so many stories were recorded. So there's a bunch of Roger Delgado Master stories out there, even though he, technically he wasn't around that long with the series uh i do wonder what it would have been like though as a viewer back in the day in the uk and week after week after week after week for a huge chunk of the year this guy comes up as often as the doctor it it, would it have seemed strange dave i can't see how it wouldn't have seemed strange yeah and maybe our view of this is clouded by our australian experience which is that the perwe era was repeated so often that you didn't have season eight. You just had the Pertwee era. It was shown at that stage generally five nights a week. So season eight went by in a couple of months. And before that, you'd had season seven and it flowed straight into season nine and then season 10. So whilst there was a number of master stories kind of in a row, there actually was a lot of not master stories. Whereas in, in England, you're right, it would have been just that season, one episode a week over six months, that would have dragged it out more, I guess. Mm. Yeah, I, I have no way of knowing what that would have felt like. Um, so, look, I, I lean toward, is it overkill? No, I don't think it is. You're introducing this new major character, and he's very good. But, yeah, there, there's that little tickle at the back of my head that's like, mm, what would it have been like? I don't know. Hard to answer. We'll keep going. We have a, another one from a regular correspondent, and that is Rob Kelly. Thank you again for all your writing in over the course of 2019, Rob. Yeah, thank you. He says, I have a signed copy of Day of the Daleks, the target book, by Tom Baker. I assume you mean signed by Tom Baker, not written by Tom Baker, because <laughs> if you've got Day of the Daleks written by Tom Baker, I want to read that. <laughs> That'd be akin to those... Uh in the 90s, wasn't Spike Milligan doing books like Frankenstein according to Spike Milligan and Wuthering Heights according to Spike <laughs> Milligan? It'd be akin to that sort of thing, wouldn't it? That would be wonderful. We need to make that happen. <laughs> um, he goes on to say, I found the book in, at a second-hand bookshop years ago and bought it for $2.50. Wow. Tom Baker has personally signed it to the previous author and dated it 79. Did Tom Baker come out to Australia in 79? Uh Yes, he did. And in fact, if you listen to a couple of episodes of Flight Through Entirety, uh, Richard and Nathan actually talk about 
going out to see Tom Baker in the supermarket car park somewhere in Sydney. Uh, they talk about which costume he was in. I think it was his season 16 costume he was in, maybe 17. Mm-hmm. Maybe early 17. But but they certainly talk about it. I know someone who I knew, have met through fandom who has met Tom Baker when he came out. Uh, and he was doing at that stage the Keep Australia Beautiful stuff. Why do you want to go to Australia? You know nothing about Australia. Yes, I do. Yes, I do. Well, I've been reading all about it. Look, Australia, a sunburnt country of sweeping plains, rugged mountain ranges of droughts and flooding rains. Banjo Patterson, you see, I know everything. Go on, ask me something else. Population. 14 million. Size. Big. Bradman's best test score. Uh... Now, I don't know whether he did a couple of trips and that was one. I'm getting a couple confused, but he definitely came out uh, as part of that, he did appear on Countdown and was interviewed by Molly Meldrum. Correct. And if you haven't seen Tom Baker try to work out what the deal is with Molly Meldrum, <laughs> just you got to check this out because it's just two two extraordinarily eccentric people who are just not gelling at all. <laughs> now your theme song um, a couple of years ago was a big hit on the charts, and now there's a disco version out. Have mm. you heard the disco version? Yes, I have. Yes. In fact, do any of the monsters or Doctor Who dance to it at any stage? No, no, they're not brave enough back home to let me do that. I'd like to do that very much. But the disco version? Yes. Um, I don't know if that's when he did the Prime Computer stuff, which was in New Zealand from memory. I don't know if that was part of the same trip. But certainly when Tom Baker was, you know, a world-famous presence, he did those trips. Yeah, look, I was going to say much the same. There were two trips, one in 79 and one in 80, Ah, that's maybe I am conflating the two. You, you you tend to find more material online though from the seventy nine trip. Like I think you find the Keep Australia Beautiful from seventy nine, and I think Countdown was seventy nine. Prime Computer stuff might have been filmed in eighty. Could have been filmed here for the New Zealand market. I'm not entirely sure, but yeah, there were two trips fairly close together in seventy nine and eighty. Uh, so yes, that is a that is a real thing you've got there, Rob. He he really was here in '79 in Australia. Uh, yes, um, sadly I didn't get to see him, partly because I wasn't born. <laughs> I was only four myself at the time and five for the uh, second trip, so it wasn't really something I would have been uh, agitating my parents to take me to either. <laughs> uh, no, but as I say, I do have one or two friends who did go, and uh, I think that's a very big memory for them. Fantastic. Now, our next question is a another one from Sheldon Carnegie. So this will be the second one he's asked in this episode. Dave, he actually sent us eight for this for this episode, so we're farming them out. Here, we've got Steve B to answer one of your questions, Sheldon, and uh, we'll let Steve B take it away. Hi there, Doctor Who show listeners. Stephen here from the New to Who podcast with a Merry Christmas and a Happy New Year to all of our listeners at home. I also have to say a big thank you to my wonderful friends and fellow Australian podcasting stablemates, Rob and Dave, for having me on to answer, in my own strange way admittedly, a question which was submitted by Sheldon Carnegie, who asks, Why do we love this show so much? It's old, battered, worn, impossible, cheeky, sad, infuriating, and at times it draws our ire. Why do we go on giving it so much of our hopes and best wishes? I love this question, Sheldon, and I actually have my own little theory about this that maybe suggests that it isn't uh, quite so simple 
an answer, and maybe even almost biologically and culturally inevitable, that we will forever be obsessed with our favourite television show. To explain why, I have to go back to where it can be first uh, be seen to occur, in the Western literary tradition at least. So the second oldest text after Homer's Iliad is his Odyssey. It's the story of the lost king Odysseus, desperately trying to make his way home after the sack of Troy. It's the story of a wanderer who long ago left his home after a calling he could not disobey, who has, experience, who has experienced many of the wonders and dangers of the known and unknown worlds, and who now finds himself much changed, wiser, sadder, but also infinitely richer for those experiences. And Odysseus is not alone in this tradition of the wanderer far from home, for there are legends from throughout antiquity and since that speak of a figure half-human, half-divine, who conquers death. The myths tell of a stranger without a home, and about a man with a thousand faces, who mysteriously arrives, seemingly out of nowhere, just the most incredible and wonderful things, and then, before anyone can thank him, or even ask him why, he disappears into ether from whence he came. Her travails are enormous, and the obstacles she overcomes are monumental, almost impossible. Assisted by friends whom she encounters along the way, she will nonetheless suffer setbacks that result in failures so abysmal that they would deter the ordinary lesser mortals. Exile, despair, even death. At times she is led by enemies into self-doubt and even temptation in order that she may abandon her path. But she is never swayed, never deterred, never defeated. The tale is old and has been told many times. It is the story, amongst others, of Adonis, Atus, Osiris, and of Christ, the Green Knight, and also the Buddha. Our rites of Christmas and Easter, bound to those of solstice and equinox, celebrate to this day those eternally dying and reviving gods, forever fallen, only to rise again. It is argued that the legacies of these strange gods persist because they simultaneously echo and resolve the subconscious preoccupation of the human mind, the one question that has stood since the dawn of time. The oldest question that can never be answered, who am I? For all our edifices and outward symbols of civilization, endeavor and progress, that Neolithic voice, forever fearing and always asking that same question can neither be silenced nor resolved. And so we tell the story anew, this time with the hero wearing a different face, more recognizable garments, and are set against the backdrop of our modern times. Sometimes so powerful is its force that the story is retold over and again. This is the story of Doctor Who, and it is the television age's own retelling of a much more ancient tale. There will never be a time when Doctor Who isn't relevant, and we'll always need a hero like the Doctor. Wow, what an answer there. Um, of course, that was Steve B., our sometime co-host here on the show, and uh, apologies for the sound quality. I did hit Steve up when he didn't have his regular equipment to hand, and uh, I did want him to be on the show, so we recorded in uh, any which way we could, and I'm sure you'll agree, though, that the the information in that answer, harking back to the, the Odyssey and, and all of that stuff, at, you know, basically the dawn of civilization, just just incredible stuff. Thank you very much to Steve for uh, taking the time. We'll actually hear from Steve next in probably a few weeks when, uh, Dave, you go away for some of the episodes of this new series. Uh, yes, if the schedule for the next series is as we expect it to be, I will be in the new world for three of the episodes, unfortunately, which is a shame. 
Hopefully I'm able to get them where I'm going. Uh, but I will be visiting the setting of a classic Hartnell historical during one of those times. So I guess that makes up for it. Fantastic. And I think I know where you might be going. Uh, well, which which classic Hartnell historical is set in the Americas? The Aztecs. The Aztecs. Yes, very, very good. And I'm sure it'll look better than the, uh, the, the painting they did on the back of the studio wall <laughs> for the episode. Uh, we'll see. We'll see. Anyway, great answer there from Steve. Uh, Dave, we, we could spend an hour, we could spend a whole show talking about this topic ourselves. It was a great answer to the impossible question. Yes. <laughs> I might just leave it at that for mine, but if you've got anything further. Look, it's hard to quantify why you like anything. You know, why, do, why is it that I can sit through every ball of a five-day cricket test and five minutes of tennis and I want to leave the room? Why is it that some shows appeal and some don't? Look... Doctor Who has great writing, it's imaginative, it's innovative, it goes all the way in, in different places in time and space. But other shows have great writing and great actors and great imagination. At some point it just works for you deep down inside and that's just part of the mysteries of the universe. Indeed. Speaking of people from other Australian podcasts, we have a tweet here from Brendan Jones at Brandy Bongos, who is of course a important part of the Flight Through Entirety podcast up in Sydney. He says, Why the actual hell did Davros not open his eyes for 40 damn years? Answer with diagrams and without mentioning the time war. <laughs> diagrams <laughs> could be tricky on a podcast, <laughs> which I think is why he asked that. To be completely serious about this for our listeners out there who don't know, Dave, I always took this to be that Davros was, was injured in an accident and that injury was also to his eyes. And although he had eyes, it, it pained him to open them. And that's why his eyes are always shut. Am I misremembering that? Uh, well, my memory has always been, and this is probably based in large part on Ben Aronovich's novelization of Remembrance of the Daleks, which does have a chapter that flashes back to Davros becoming Davros, as we know him. And he does talk about the burnt-out cinders where his eyeballs used to be, or words to that effect, which I'd always taken as gospel, but I guess it is only in the in the uh, the novel. Um, maybe because his eyesight's better with them shut, you know, his, his, his mechanical eyesight is better. Maybe if he opens his eyes, he's still getting the feed from his other eye, and it causes him to, you know, get some funny visions. Um <laughs> Maybe he's colorblind. It's, it's certainly a psych out for people, though, to, to go into a room with your eyes closed and still be able to see them. I, I'm, I, if I could do that at work meetings, that'd be quite something. <laughs> <laughs> um, I don't know. Look, I hated it at the time, but it's it's one of those things now I think we just kind of have to laugh at, really. Yeah, look, it, it's an, uh, there are so many questions about Davros. Obviously, you look at the other people from his race who haven't mutated into Dalek mutants, and they look very humanoid, whereas he has this very uh, stylized, can we say, kind of face. <laughs> like it's, it's mm. there's like there's angles and shapes that just aren't natural to to his people at all. Davros is a very weird sort of design. Uh, becomes a bit more organic as time goes on. The Terry Malloy Davros looks a bit more uh, malleable, almost like his flesh has melted a bit or something like that, and the, the lips are getting dark, like the Emperor in the new Star Wars film, and all of that. It's 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 weird though, and obviously he does open his eyes in the new series, so he he definitely has eyes. Oh, lovely blue eyes, as I recall. Yeah, weren't yeah. they? Yeah, it's it's a mystery. His eyes, his look, everything. It's uh, it's Davros. Maybe he had eye augments put in at some point. Ooh, that's a nice thought. 
maybe. Yeah. I don't know. I think I think we're looking too seriously at what <laughs> was a very funny question. Yeah, thank you, Brendan, for the question. Uh, it was a good, fun one. Um, okay, next one. Baz Warrington via Facebook. Just wondering... Oh, this is a non-Doctor Who question, Dave, because we did ask for those as well. Just wondering if you have ever watched a show called Farscape. For me, it's up there with Blake 7 as the greatest sci-fi show ever, and it was made in Oz with a mainly Aussie cast. Dave? Look, props for saying that Blake 7 is the greatest sci-fi show ever. Good call. (laughs) Very, very good call. I hope you're all listening to Space Fall Blake 7 podcast, which will be back in 2020. Um, No, I actually haven't seen it, and there's two reasons for that. At the time it came out, I didn't have, or the family didn't have, uh, Foxtel or whatever the particular carrier was that Farscape was broadcast on. So it kind of missed me. It also was out at around the time I was doing um, my final years of high school and transitioning into uni. And there are actually a number of shows that have just completely missed me because there are only so many shows I could watch while sort of trying to finish school and, and do the study. And I mean, you know how involved that can be in you know, year 11 and 12. Mm. Um, the, X, the X-Files is another one, for example, that I probably would have got into had it been five years earlier or five years later, but I just didn't have time to get into the X-Files. I kept up with Babylon 5. I kept up with Deep Space Nine. Um, you would have uh, kept up with Buffy, I'm sure. Yeah, Buffy... I discovered Buffy right towards the end of year 12 because I remember I saw her graduation episode roughly about the same time I was graduating high school. Huh. Buffy and I are the same age. We were born the same year, the character and I. Interesting. Um, yeah, so like there were shows like that. Roswell I discovered when I was at uni. I didn't watch that in, in high school. And, and, you know, Babylon 5 at that stage was more about, you know, getting tapes. And if you had a quiet weekend in the holidays, binging 10 episodes, not about watching it weekly because that's how we were getting B5 at the time. So, yeah, look, as I say, if Farscape was five years earlier or five years later, I probably would have watched it. And then it did kind of vanish off the radar. It hasn't been a show that people have been coming up to me over the last 20 years and saying, hey, Farscape, you've got to watch it. Maybe I do. Maybe I should check it out sometime. Yeah, look, I'm in much the same boat as you. So the, the, the quick answer is no, I've never watched Farscape either. And again, yes, there, there were so many shows around that time. I was committed to watching certain shows and just didn't see others. It's the same now. You look at Netflix, flick through Netflix or Amazon or whatever. There are shows on there that are marvellous and I've never seen them. There are even just movies that would only take two hours of my time to watch. Never seen them. Yet there are others that I've watched over and over and over. And concur, Dave, that it's not one where people get very excited and still talk about it en masse today to the extent that you want to go and watch it. I think maybe some Farscape actors pop up at Supernovas from time to time. That may yes. be because there was a mainly Aussie cast and they're here as Aussies and they're very easy to get into Supernova. But even that hasn't been enough to sort of get me into it. It's... No, I contrast it with something like Firefly, where oh, I, I, I didn't see Firefly at the time it was broadcast, but consistently for... 15 years now there have always been people saying have you seen Firefly no you must see Firefly go out and watch Firefly and I I did a couple of years after it came out and became someone who said if you haven't seen Firefly go see Firefly there hasn't been that quite the same for for Farscape and again perhaps because it was so Australian based and hasn't had that big US or UK push 
Yeah, that's interesting. And and with Firefly, obviously the the Whedon factor was huge as well because you had this showrunner out doing other shows, and you you could say, well, that guy has also done this other show called Firefly, and then people say, well, I love what he's doing now, so I'll go back and watch it. Whereas I I couldn't tell you who the showrunner of Farscape was. No idea. No. No idea. And, and, and Firefly is also only half a season. I don't know how long Farscape went for, but I have a feeling it was a few seasons. I think so. The years, yeah. Yeah, and, and so again, it's, it's not as easy a thing to catch up with. Uh, Stargate is another example from that era of something that I've absolutely no doubt, had I had the capacity to watch it, I would have watched it and enjoyed it, but I, I, I just didn't. And it's the same today, as you say, Rob. There are so many shows that I would love to watch, and if I was unemployed and didn't need to sleep, I absolutely would. Um, sadly, I can't spend 24 hours a day just watching television. Yeah, yeah, I completely agree there. So we have one here sent in actually by a podcast, a, a sentient podcast, apparently. <laughs> Flight through entirety at FTE Podcast. It's gained sentience, uh, Dave. Look out. <laughs> wow. Um, what a concept that would be. Mm. Um, look, I've just finished listening to their uh, discussion on Series 3 of New Who and I must admit it hasn't changed my views on some of the episodes but it's really changed my perspective on a few and I've thought about some of those particularly stuff like Utopia and Sound of Drums and Last of the Time Lords in a very different way because they've come at it in a very different way and so that's very interesting but their question is which is the best Cyberman story of the classic series and why is it the invasion? (laughs) Well it just so happens that I do think the invasion is pretty damn good. Let's analyse it, Dave. What makes it good? Unit, Cybermen, a plot that actually makes some sense. It's not just Cybermen trying to, to bash their way into a base. Yeah. Uh, Kevin Stone used to buy a spawn. Yes. Location filming. Epic, classic, iconic location filming. Yes. Yes, that's what I mean by the location filming. It's just wonderful to look at. It, it feels like a film, and it's so very sad that some of the episodes are missing. Yeah, I, I mean, to go back to the premise of their question, what is the best Cyberman story of the classic series? The Invasion is absolutely up there as a contender, and possibly the winner. I think Tomb would compete with it. Yeah. I think Earthshock... Ooh, Earthshock could compete with it on the right day. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, The Invasion's up there. Certainly in the 60s. Yeah, yeah, look, I'm, I'm happy to go with the Invasion being the best, but but as I say, Tomb, Tomb competes with it. I really like Tomb. I like the Moonbase as well, but the Invasion's better. <laughs> and, 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 and yeah, it, it just works. It is epic. It is interesting. It is powerful. I mean, some of those scenes with, with Vaughn and Packer, uh, the scene with Professor Watkins where, where Vaughn goads him to shoot him, the stakes are big. I mean, this is a story that actually has characters pop over to Russia to get Russia to help us defend the world. Mm-hmm. I always remember as a kid being absolutely captured by the idea of the cyber fleet coming in and Zoe doing the calculation so the missiles can take them all out. Mm. And then there's the extra bit with the cyber bomb and I mean and Kevin Stoney is fantastic, Peter Halliday is fantastic. It's the first story with Brigadier Lethbridge Stewart. That's right. Uh, as, a, as a recurring character, it introduces Benton. It's so good. It is so, so good. I want to go watch The Invasion now. <laughs> All right, that's the end of the podcast, everybody. Thank you. <laughs> Bye-bye. We'll, we'll just stop while we go and watch The Invasion. <laughs> 
Uh, Dave, our next question, now that we're back from watching The Invasion, is uh, a third one from Sheldon Carnegie. So, Sheldon, you got three in this episode. All of your questions, they were great, and maybe we can return to some of them in the future as well. And uh, this is one that we'll actually answer, rather than tossing it out to one of our co-hosts. Sheldon asks, if you had your way, what themes, stories, kinds of companions, or tones of writing would you introduce to Doctor Who? Well, I could cheat here and say, go back to the episode that we recorded with our friends from New to Who, where we actually did discuss this topic and all pitched our ideas for a new series of Doctor Who. That's true. Um, I'd forgotten about that episode. So I'd encourage, I'd encourage you, Sheldon, if you haven't listened to that, to go back uh, about two years now, I think that was, mm-hmm. and, uh, and, and listen to that. But I would definitely be looking at ways to expand the horizons of the show. I would want some really good classic historicals. I would want some wonderful Blake Seven-ish space adventure. I would have a lot of monsters. Uh, in terms of themes, monsters, is monsters a theme? Monsters is a good theme. I think so. In, in terms of companions, uh, I would have somebody who was contemporary but not English. Uh, maybe an Australian, maybe an, an American um, a South African or something uh, I'll go for that uh, tones of writing as I say I would kind of mine what I love about classic era Doctor Who and I would probably try and do a homage to 60s Who as I say monsters and historicals and really wild adventures obviously with a modern take and a modern spin uh, that's my one sentence or two sentence summary of Sheldon's question. Rob, what about you? Yeah, look, thinking back to that episode that you've reminded me of now, I went for a very 60s spin in terms of the Doctor and Companion and maybe some of the settings and stuff like that. That was what I was talking about then. But to give a, a new take, yeah, look, I think a, a real space opera kind of series, a whole series where... The Doctor loses the TARDIS and they're, they're stuck. Loses the TARDIS, loses the Sonic, has to live in a very, um, I don't know what kind of universe it could be. Obviously, there might be some big evil empire or something going on, a resistance movement, and they just move around planets and have these adventures in the one time frame. Uh, although they may move around space on, on ships, they might stow away on ships or they might get on resistance ships and zip around. And, and it's just one big unified story across the 10 or 12 episodes or whatever i think that could be a lot of fun uh and and something quite different for the series i think different in terms of they've not done you know like 10 episodes of space opera all put together the, the closest we've got i guess is what the war games or trial of a time Lord, which isn't remotely what i'm talking about you know in terms of long stories frontier in space pun of the daleks does that get closer Oh, it, it, it gets closer, but I'm thinking, think more like Man in the High Castle, Dave, where the Doctor's in that universe, getting around having adventures in Berlin, the US, and so on, but on a galactic scale, different planets and so on. Dalek's Master Plan? <laughs> maybe, maybe an updated version of that. I think that would be a lot of fun. I do love historicals too, but we seem to be getting more historicals lately, so that's not a new or you know, uh, big need for me because I'm, I'm already seeing those on screen. Companions, yes, would love to see companions from places other than the UK, although I appreciate maybe that they've got a hire from the UK and then it's someone doing an accent perhaps and, you know, that, that can be problematic so they just stick to, to what they know. And tones of writing, it's, it's, it's all about adventure for me. 
adventure, adventure, adventure. You know, I'd, I'd be happy if they did Indiana Jones in space every week. <laughs> that's, that's the kind of stuff I really, really enjoy. Uh, yes, uh, the reality is, of course, that I am terrible at writing fiction. Not, not bad, I like to think, at writing non-fiction. And um, so, unfortunately, any episode of Doctor Who I tried to write would probably end up reading more like some sort of political analysis piece <laughs> which wouldn't be interesting for anybody so uh, this is this is extraordinarily hypothetical right <laughs> so we have a question that was left on our Facebook page from Jeff Waddle hello Jeff and he writes probably easy to answer due to my bracket our age if you could see all classic who and knew who it never existed would you have that right Yes, I would. <laughs> oh. Rob, would you trade all of New Who away? You're going to Thanos out New Who, but you get to see all of Classic Who. Oh, that's, that is so tough. But you know what? I'm going to go against the grain and say no. And the reason why is if we never had New Who, Doctor Who would remain this classic series. And that's cool. We have classic Star Trek and stuff. People look back on that fondly. But we would never have a modern series driving forward new fans and stuff. We might still have novels and things like that appealing to older fans, but it would never be in the zeitgeist again. It would never be something special for that six-year-old or seven-year-old and... You know, maybe it's just the spirit of the season getting to me, but I, I like seeing that new generation go forward, and to do that, you need a new series. So, yeah, I'll trade off seeing the Myth Makers ever for, you know, for having New Who exist and excite new kids as they grow up. Yeah, there's two ways I could answer the question, selfishly or generously. Selfishly, would I give away New Who in order to see... Evil of the Daleks, the Daleks' master plan, the massacre, Marco Polo, the Mythmakers, Fury from the Deep, Abominable Snowman, Power of the, you know, you know, you're making it hard, Dave. Um, you know, you know, to, to quote Davros, yes, I would do it. That power would set me up above the gods. Um, but y- y- yes, you're right. Um, do we have the right to trade away the enjoyment and pleasure of millions of people? who have discovered Doctor Who via the new series? Probably not. Yeah. But if you got me on the right day, I'll do it. (laughs) (laughs) Golly, keep Dave away from the archives, folks. (laughs) So our next question comes from another member of the Diddly Dumb team, Mark. And Mark has asked us... Yes, I'm just pulling it up here, Dave. Mark has asked us, which is the best classic invasion? Daleks... Cybermen or dinosaurs <laughs> obviously I'm only asking this to make you talk about how brilliant Invasion of the Dinosaurs is Merry Christmas well thank you Mark I couldn't ask for more for Christmas than the chance to talk about Invasion of the Dinosaurs and you know it so thank you uh, look to give the serious answer which of those was the best invasion it's got to be the Daleks because the Daleks actually succeeded yes <laughs> and in fact, in fact I was thinking about this earlier it's almost unique in Doctor Who that an alien invasion actually succeeds is an occupying force for a a number of years Mm -hmm. and then there is an aftermath to it. The invasion isn't uh, you know reset switched or undone or anything like that. Earth actually has to pick itself up after that invasion so it was successful. I've said before Dark Invasion of Earth is my favourite Dalek story. We've discussed earlier that 
Invasion is arguably the best Cyberman story, mm. but Invasion of the Dinosaurs is probably my sentimental favourite in that. It's the one that I loved as a boy. I enjoy it on so many levels now. It's just such a rollicking good adventure with so much message, Pertwee and Slayton together. Mm. Um, that probably last really big hurrah for the Brigadier. Yeah. Maybe it's because it's Christmas time and I'm feeling all <laughs> all sentimental and, and warm, but uh, <laughs> right now I'm going to say dinosaurs. What about you, Rob? Yeah, I was going to pick up on much of that. All three of these are absolutely fantastic. As you mentioned, we, we said the invasion's the best Cyberman story, at least of the 60s, if not of all time. Dalek's Invasion of Earth, I have always loved, and Dinosaur Invasion is just brilliant too. If I had to go with one, I'd probably plump for the Daleks too. Sorry, Mark, but I do love Dinosaur Invasion. It, it's just wonderful. You're quite right, Dave, on all counts. If we're going novelizations, it would be Dinosaur Invasion hands down, would you agree? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, that's the better novel. It's been years since I read it, but yeah, I do recall that. Well, this is just another reason for me to stop recording this and go watch The Invasion. <laughs> All right then, Dave, I'll see you in uh, almost three hours. <laughs> we have another one here from an Australian podcast. This is from the 42 to Doomsday co-host Mark. And I should give a plug here that I do appear on 42 to Doomsday's Christmas staff party again this year. So check out that. We had a lot of fun doing that one. Good fun episode, Dave. There was a lot in it. There was a lot in it. Always fun to chat to those guys. Yeah. Mark says, The furnace is aflame. You have three stories in your hand. You can only save one. <laughs> Fury from the Deep, Evil of the Daleks, or Power of the Daleks. Wow. So we're assuming these have all come back. Uh, they've been found. <laughs> yes, but you can only keep one. I think I keep evil. I think... Oh, gosh. Fury, though. Oh, Do the animations still exist in this universe as well? Oh. <laughs> Can that be my cheat? Oh, no, look, I, I won't cheat. I'll say out of the three, I think evil is the more interesting story to me. And I think I would keep evil. They're definitely all very high on my list of stories I would love to see back. I'm conflicted. I think that the right thing to do on behalf of fandom would be to keep Power of the Daleks because it is that first Trouton story, it's that first regeneration and I think that there is a lot of value in seeing that again but if I made the personal pick, I'm with you Rob, I would pick Evil of the Daleks, I really love that story I want to see the climax of it with the Emperor so much Yeah And as much as I really enjoy Fury from the Deep, that is one story where I do worry it would actually go down if it was seen because what on audio is very tense there's that background sound it's very claustrophobic when you see it would maybe just be lots of people screaming at the BBC foam machine and uh, I'm worried about that I mean I'll never turn it down if it came back but no look personal choice evil of the Daleks but if I was feeling generous and did the right thing by fandom power of the Daleks yeah, look, I agree there. Yeah, yeah. again, for me, evil, great time travel stuff, exploding Dalek cities. Oh, what's not to like? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Okay. Uh, thank you, Mark. Thank you, Mark. 
Our final one, Dave, uh, before we get to just our general listener emails for this episode, is from William Bill McCann III over in the States, another regular contributor for us. Hello, Bill. How are you going? And this one's pretty lengthy. It's, it's very interesting, though, so we've saved this till last. Hi, Rob and Dave. Having heard you weigh in on other podcasts, my question is about a topic I've been kicking around for a while, and that is, what makes for a good podcast? What is it about a podcast that engages your interest or motivates you as podcasters to giving another podcast a listen and what keeps you coming back for more? My shortlist includes descriptors like energetic, accurate, entertaining, educational, and interactive. I can amplify these if you like, but would rather add to my list of five a quality I have trouble reducing to a single word, which is probably best put forth as a question. Does the podcast give Doctor Who a pass on antiquated visual effects, on subject matter which was once but is no longer considered controversial, on inclusion and portrayal of outdated social norms and the like? Put another way, does it critique and celebrate Vintage Who for what it is? Dot, dot, dot. A product of its time. Some podcasters devote way too much time to superimposing today's collective social conscience onto television that's more than half a century removed from current norms. There's nothing wrong with looking in a mirror to see what's behind us, to see what came before, but to judge the past by today's standards effectively negates what progress we've made in the meantime. There's wisdom in learning from the past, but leave it where it belongs in the past." So there you have it. Obviously, your podcast satisfies all of my criteria, which is why it's one of my favorites. I look forward to your thoughts on the subject and your next podcast. Until then, happy holidays and happy travels from Blue Box Bill McCann Third. Well, there's a question, Dave. It's a very interesting question and potentially a loaded question for us to answer, given that we are podcasters. Mm. And we, uh, what, what makes a good podcast for me is, in essence, very, very simple and that is a conversation that I want to be a part of. The best podcasts for me are the ones where the people on the podcast are engaging in conversation, and I find myself, you know, taking my because I always listen to podcasts in the car on my commute. I find myself taking a hand off the wheel and starting to gesture at the speaker and 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 and, and trying to interrupt them and, and trying to be involved in their conversation because I'm I'm so engaged and I want and I want to join them. And that, to me, is what makes a really good podcast. In terms of what they say and how they say it, I, I always think that there are three different ways that I approach podcasts, and often individual episodes within podcasts. There's there's number one, which is the best way, which is I agree with everything you're saying, and I love that you're saying what I, I believe, and it's just wonderful agreeing with you. Then there's the, you know, I don't really agree with the points you're making here, but it's really interesting listening to why you think that. Uh, it might be that they think a story I love is no good and, and why they think it's no good. Or it might be that the reverse or something like that. That's always interesting. And then there's the third, which is you listen to these and go, did we watch the same program? Yeah. <laughs> you know, I actually can't get to where, where those people are. And, and in those cases, sometimes you, you, you do jettison them. And I think that that is part of what Bill was, was referring to there when you do need somebody that approaches the show in the way that you do. Uh, and, and I think we certainly approach Doctor Who as being a product of its times. And occasionally we discuss things that were problematic and, you know, you wouldn't do today. And you you um, still enjoy the series. It's one thing that if I can diverge a little bit when uh, we did the Goodies Pirate podcast, myself and Mark and Robin Richard, 
where we devoted a segment every episode to what you couldn't get away with today and, and, and discussed what the goodies was doing then that you simply couldn't do now and whether that was a case of mm. society has changed, whether it was actually just quite wrong and it's quite uncomfortable, whether it's a bit wrong but it's kind of hilarious. Uh, you know, you can look at a show like that and still enjoy it whilst knowing its problems. But yeah, I, I, I just a good podcast for me is one that's interesting and engaging and I want to be part of. At their best, podcasts have replaced to a large degree fan clubs and that ability to sit around a table with a bunch of fans and chat about Doctor Who. Fan clubs really don't exist all that much anymore, particularly in Australia. The Doctor Who Club Victoria is going on, but it's, it's a very different club to what it was when I joined it. Mm. And it's, 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 it's catering to different needs. And because we don't have that thing of, okay, we'll all go around to somebody's house on Saturday afternoon or to a meeting venue on Saturday afternoon and chat about Doctor Who, we have podcasts to do that. And, and, and a good podcast feels like a Doctor Who Club meeting. Very well said. Look, for me, there are there are practical things I look for, technical things I look for almost in podcasts, you know, so just to go on a, on a different track, I look for not so much technical expertise, but technical competence. It's got to sound okay when I'm, you know, zooming along in the car and listening to it. It's got to sound okay. I've got to like the sound of the podcast's voices, you know, do they sound like friendly people to me? Am I drawn into the conversation? Length. I prefer shorter podcasts than not. There are some podcasts I listen to which are 20, 25 minutes. I think they're wonderful. I think a podcast of an hour or a bit over an hour is really good. That's what we try to do on our show. Podcasts that get very, very long, they have to be very special for me to listen to. One I'll pull out of the air, uh, non-Doctor Who, so we're not you know, playing favourites with Doctor Who podcasts, is uh, Hardcore History. Uh, Hardcore History puts out episodes that are sometimes four, five, six hours long. And I'm literally just playing it every time I get in my car for the best part of a week. Uh, so I do listen to long podcasts, but generally I like shorter podcasts. Getting on to this actual question, though, of looking at the past, we often... I was going to say joke, but it's not a joke. We, we say we're in the sensible centre. And that's not to say that people who don't think like us aren't sensible. That's just the term that's given to the centre. It's the sensible centre. And Dave, you and I were having a conversation with other podcasters just this morning who were making comments about a Star Wars film. And they were saying, look at all these pilots in the fourth Star Wars film. They're all blokes. And that's one modern view to put on it. And it's, it's fair, it's valid, because, hey, they are all blokes in that film. And I said to them, yeah, but look, it's 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 aping World War II movies. In fact, George Lucas had, you know, literally World War II movies he was copying in terms of the dogfighting in Star Wars and so on. And I don't think the US had women fighter pilots for another 20 years after 1977. It was in the 90s sometime. So back in 77, it was completely normal that maybe that's how a fighter squadron would look to the mainstream audience, and that's why they did it in the film. It's not weird to me at all, yet some people might look back at, at it now and say, oh, that, that's a bit iffy but no it's not and i think when you come from where we are in podcasting land we can see why something is but we don't call it out as much as others might because i don't think that's useful sometimes certainly not to me you, you, your thoughts may differ on that dave i i just don't find it a very interesting conversation to say oh someone 40 50 years ago was you know doing things which were normal for that time and we should judge them now i I find that very problematic, you know. 
Look, I think that one thing that we try to do is put an opinion that questions and is simply an opinion. And, and, you know, we sometimes fail in that. But I think that a podcast that says, here's a view, do you agree, is more interesting than here is an opinion and if you don't agree with us, you're wrong. Yeah. Uh, and, um, you know, we, we don't always meet that, but we certainly try to. But, yeah, you're right. There are lots of good podcasts out there that meet our criteria. Um, to give an example of one I've got into this year uh, is the Broad and Fry podcast, which is two people by the names of Stephen Fry and Stuart Broad who uh, just chat about cricket. Um, and it's helped by the fact that they're both celebrities and one plays test cricket. <laughs> but but despite that, it is actually just two very clear mates who clearly love cricket and just chat about it for sort of 30 to 40 minutes. And it's really interesting and really fun. Uh, something like um, Fat Man Beyond, which is Kevin Smith and Mark Benarton, who talk about pop culture and Star Wars and, and, and Marvel and all that sort of thing. Again, that goes for a little bit longer because they have some audience interaction. It's filmed live. But that's, again, just two two mates who just chat about something they love and give their views. And sometimes you go, gee, I really agree with their take on that. And sometimes you go, I don't agree with their take on that at all. But, yeah, it's an interesting take. And that's what I love in a podcast. Yeah. Yeah, look, completely agree with you there. I'm, I'm just flicking through some of the podcasts I listen to. I, I won't start reading out a big list. But, yeah, it's it's really about the conversations for me. I mean, I love uh, Conan O'Brien Needs a Friend, where, admittedly, he's getting celebrities on to chat, but it's not like a talk show chat. This is a chat that might go for 40, 50, 60 minutes, and they can go into all sorts of strange places and, and very touching places and, you know, nothing like you would see Conan do on TV, although he still has the same humour as he does it. So I really enjoy that podcast. Yeah, that's a big question, Bill. Really big question. Yeah, uh, Tom Ballard's Like a Six-Year-Old podcast. I don't listen to every episode, but I see who his guest is each time. And if it's a conversation I'm curious about, I go and have a listen to that conversation. And again, it's better than sitting in the car not listening to anything. <laughs> I think about how podcasting's really killed radio, Dave. I mean, some great podcasts come from radio. I do get that. But just in general, I don't listen to the radio at all anymore? Uh, no. If there's something going on in the world that I want to hear about, uh, or there's sport, I will flick the radio across. But no, generally now I listen to a podcast. I mean, or, or I listen to music. I mean, why would you let a DJ pick what music I listen to when I could pick the songs for myself? Yeah, precisely right. I hope that's given you a, a, an answer to a very difficult and complicated question. Uh, I hope we've answered that satisfactorily and not going up our own ass too much. <laughs> can I say that? Yes, that you can. Thing, that was the thing I was worried about, you know, ask, you know, wh- why is your podcast so good? Well, let me tell you, like, you don't want to do that. Um, we're just a couple of guys doing a podcast. That's um, it. We're nothing special, yeah. Yeah. All right. Now, Dave, to close the show, we've got some general emails which weren't sent in as part of the, the question and answer thing, but um, they've obviously come in and we'd like to acknowledge the people who've sent them. Uh, do you want to kick us off with the first one from Mike Solko? I shall. Thanks again for writing in and being part of our podcast and part of our year here at the Doctor Who Show, Mike. Much appreciated. Hi, Robin Dave. I intended to send a list of five or so moments before last month's episode, but lost track of time. I love many of your picks. I'll stick with the big two new series moments that stand out for me. Father's Day. Who said you're not important? I've travelled to all sorts of places, done things you couldn't even imagine, but you two, street corner, two in the morning, getting a taxi home, 
I've never had a life like that. It's a beautiful scene that underscores RTD's approach towards a very human doctor. Hey, of course I remember. I remember everyone. Hey, we ran, you and me. Didn't we run, Lorna? Who was she? The polar opposite of the previous scene from Father's Day, this gives a glimpse of a deeply alien doctor trying to show a moment of kindness while, in truth, remaining distant. Lorna Bucket, is it Bucket or Bouquet? <laughs> is she Sorry. related to Hyacinth? <laughs> Sorry, joke there. Lorna Bucket gets a dynamic backstory that I think most fans can relate to. To see how quickly she is forgotten by the Doctor cuts deeply. I hope you're both ready for the weekly grind to start up again in a few weeks. Wishing you both a happy holidays, Mike Solko. Well, happy holidays back to you, Mike. And um, and the weekly yes. grind doesn't stop. <laughs> yes, no, we're, uh, we're, look, we're ready for it. It's been a long time since we did it last time. We are... Uh, I hope we're still match fit. Yes, I think we will be. Well, my my blazer for the sports desk might be a little tight, but uh, <laughs> we'll we'll let it out. Um, now, look, I'll just briefly comment, Dave. Both of those episodes, Mike's uh, mentioned there, they're both defeals, aren't they? Both moments that really make you feel something, and that's where I was going with a lot of my new who picks as well, because I think that just defines what new who is. It really does go for the heartstrings at times. Yeah, look, it does, and good television does that as well. You know, I think about my favourite story, The Silurians, the ending of that. I mean, that moment of the Doctor looking at Liz and saying, the Brigadiers just wiped them out. That's a The Feels moment. It is. Not not as laid on as thick, though, perhaps. It's more... No. No, or, you know, it's the end, but the moment has been prepared for. I mean, there isn't a classic fan who doesn't have that moment... I suspect, deep, deep inside their soul. Yeah. That's a DeFeels moment. Yeah, yeah, very true, very true. Our next email is from Baz Warrington, who asked us one of the questions earlier in this episode, but this is a, a slightly earlier email from him, as you'll tell from this first line. Hi, guys. Just recently started listening to your podcast. Loving it. Well, thank you, Baz. That's good to hear. Thank you. Yeah. I've caught up on your take on Capaldi's last season, and in my opinion, he's the best doctor since Davo. Oh, that's great, Baz. I'd like to hear that. You make a decent comment on how the Doctor Falls should have been his regeneration story rather than Twice Upon a Time. I have a theory that it actually was and Twice Upon a Time all happened in 12 subconscious while lying in the TARDIS. (laughs) Wouldn't that be nice? Maybe it's because I'm of a similar vintage. I remember the last two Tom Baker seasons pretty clearly and vague memories of Leela. I left fandom during the Colin Baker years and didn't really come back. Couldn't stand McCoy and still don't. Ooh, that's controversial. Um, I just listened to one of your episodes talking of stories over six episodes and how someone should edit them down. Well, I had a go at Inferno and got it down to a two-hour movie version. I've done, wow. <laughs> yeah, I've done the same with Blake Seven too. A couple I've uploaded to YouTube. Keep up the good work, Dave. Have you seen any of these uh, Blake Seven edits? No, we'll have to go look for them and we can uh, circulate them on social media so that we can have a look at what Baz has put together. That's really. Interesting, and I do like the idea of uh, Twice Upon a Time being some crazy dream the Doctor has while he's unconscious on the floor. That that, that makes me feel good. <laughs> and a two-hour inferno. I'm down for that. Uh, yeah, I mean, how long is it otherwise? It would be... 7 by 25, uh, 140, 175. It's almost three hours. Yeah, take out credits and reprises. It's probably, yeah, well over, yeah, what, two and a half, I guess, yeah. Yeah, so he's cut, wow, cut okay. a fair bit, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And our final comment is, once again, from Sheldon Carnegie via Facebook this time. 
Is Sheldon <laughs> Carnegie our biggest fan of 2019, Dave? <laughs> Uh, he's making a he's making a late run for it. Absolutely, you know, we really appreciate the enthusiasm. Thank you. We really do. Well, I just watched the season twelve trailer, and while I know you can't tell anything at all from a sixty second slice of a full season, it looks like it's going to be fantastic. Trailing Christopher Eccleston there, mm-hmm. which is good. He's a great doctor. I'll spend the rest of the day today studying the daylights out of those sixty seconds and dreaming of how much improvement it's going to be from season eleven. Sigh. We've waited so long. Knowing full well trailers can mislead, I'm drinking the Kool-Aid with aplomb and vigour. Laugh out loud, he says. Uh, yeah, look, absolutely. I think that you can take a trailer a little bit too far, and uh, look, he acknowledges a bit of, bit of uh, self-awareness there that he's definitely doing that. Bring on the season. Yeah, look, my, uh, my thoughts on the previous uh, series are what I've said all along. I liked half of it, but my enthusiasm for this series is undimmed i'm i'm going into it really looking forward to seeing what chibnall and his writers he's got new writers he's got new directors he's got some returning folk i'm really curious as to what they can do i'm as excited as i've ever been for a series of doctor who and people who know me and know how critical i can be at times know that i'm not a raving fanboy but this is my genuine opinion i am really keen to see what they've done i'm really keen to start reviewing it i'm really excited for what comes out in gosh about Oh, a few days' time. Well, that's a very positive note, I think, to end 2019 on. Hmm. We've had some fun here. We've had a lot of people write in, which is always you know, really gratifying for us as people who give up time to put this together. It's nice to know that others are keen to engage with us. It really is. It's been great to celebrate with our various people who've helped and sat in the co-host chair on and off during the course of the year. And yeah, it, it seems weird to say that Doctor Who's only a week away, less. Yeah, days, Dave, days. <laughs> days. Like, it, 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 you know, as, as Sheldon was saying, it has been so long, and it really feels like a long time since we last watched new Doctor Who. Mm. And, uh, yeah, it's... I, 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 I don't think I'm actually going to believe it until I start watching the next episode that it's actually just here. Yeah, same. <laughs> Uh, But look, we've had a lot of fun in 2019. I hope you as listeners have as well. We will be back with a lot more very shortly. We have a conversation about The Mandalorian to come. Uh, We have another podcast of Decision, which we'll release uh, late in the Australian summer, the uh, the UK-American winter. We'll have our talks and hot takes of the new series. And of course, we'll have our episode for January coming out in a month's time as well. So lots to watch out for on the Doctor Who show. Yeah, we'll be in your ears a lot over the next month. That's a promise. (laughs) That's right. Uh, But until then, I've been Dave. I've been Rob. And we'll speak again soon. We will. Happy New Year, Dave. Happy New Year and happy Christmas, Hanukkah, Festivus. Happy everything to everyone. (laughs) Indeed. Bye. Bye. You've been listening to The Doctor Who Show, the podcast where too much Doctor Who is barely enough. Subscribe to us on iTunes or listen through the website at www.thedwshow.net. Write to us at hello at thedwshow.net or send us a quickie on Twitter at thedwshow. Facebook.com forward slash thedwshow is also a good place to find us if you're so inclined. Our version of the Doctor Who theme arranged by George Locke. Look him up on YouTube, folks. 
This podcast is intended for entertainment and informational purposes only. Doctor Who, all names and sounds, and any other related items are trademarks and or copyrights for the BBC. All other trademarks and trade names are properties of their respective owners. The official Doctor Who website can be found at www.bbc.co.uk forward slash Doctor Who. Thank you.